Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Seesaw. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seesaw. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the final episode of the year. Uh, this Third Friday's podcast has been quite the journey, which is also funny in and of itself because, what, in uh, four short weeks, I'm just going to be recording a new, new one for 2024. But it does have some finality to it, given that we're going to do a year in review. And who better to have on the podcast than two of the most listened to uh, guests in the, the podcast history, the hams themselves, right? Uh, Mr. Addison O'Donnell and Mr. Christopher Major. Welcome back to the show, guys. He's, he's coming for the throne. He's, he's rapidly overtaking me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know that we were that popular. Well, you know, I guess it's like this idea that when you, I guess, consistently get on the show, and it's like, oh, like, I remember that guy's name. Let me go back to the last time this person was on the show. Uh, which, speaking of which, I, you know, uh, we got a lot of positive feedback uh, from last month's episode with uh, Noah Pollock and uh, the first time we ever had a claimant's attorney on the show, uh, Sarah Baia of Clee Wolf. So I uh, definitely want to give thanks to them for a very riveting discussion about an appellate division case that Clee Wolf was successful in, unfortunately, uh, despite, you know, my understanding of how the, the law should have turned out and Noah's as well. And we do want to thank those two for, for uh, appearing last month. This month, it's going to take that year in review type of feel. And I do believe that you guys are, are some of the best people to talk about it because of the depth and breadth of what you cover in your position. Maybe we start there, right? Because you know when we talk about a year in review and talk about how much we've grown as a firm, as a unit, as a culture almost, you two are shining examples of, of really how this firm has evolved, right? So, you know, maybe just to remind everybody, what, what do you guys do for the firm, uh, you know, just in a few words? Well, let's let Addison go first. Well, I, uh, I run the Appeals Bureau, the Appeals Department here at Lois Law Firm, where we handle, I mean, upwards of, I would say, about 350-plus board panel Related uh, submissions, we handle upwards of 6 to 15 uh, third department uh, and appellate division related uh, matters. We're also, you know, uh, one of the few firms that uh, submits correspondences, memoranda, motions to the Court of Appeals in the state of New York, the highest court in the state, uh, on all issues of workers' compensation defense. And uh, I, you know... As an appellate attorney, I sometimes see and read the room a little bit differently than trial attorneys, right? Um, appellate law is mostly discussions of whether the law was properly applied and whether the spirit of the law indeed comports with the application thereof. You know, trial attorneys, they're arguing over evidence, they're arguing over the facts of the case, but, you know, to me, that's it's also the, uh, it's where the rubber hits the road. I mean, cross-examining witnesses, presenting evidence before judges. And so, in a sense, what I, what I deal with is in months, quarters, and years, and what trial attorneys deal with are in you know, minutes, hours, and weeks. 
uh, I think that's a good summary of what we do at the Appeals Bureau. So don't uh, forget that fourth department. We oh, yeah. have a fourth department <laughs> appearance for the Yeah, once Bureau. in a while, once in a while, you know, under Section 23 of the Workers' Compensation Law, all board panel decisions are reviewed by the Appellate Division Third Department because that's where the governor um, sits. That's where the administrative law is carried out in Albany, which sits in the Third Department. But once in a great while. You get some crazy case that strays outside of that jurisdiction and winds up being a crazy contract slash torts slash jurisdiction case that, and you know, you wind up in Rochester, you know, you wind up at the fourth department, you wind up uh, in other appellate divisions. I love how he's speaking generally, like you wind up in, in Rochester and at the fourth department as if there's hundreds of other people out there other than Addison you O'Donnell know, making that schlep. It, it is rare. It is rare. Workers' compensation cases very rarely wind up outside, but if they do, we know what to do. We, we know how to handle it. We know how to present oral argument, and we could go all the way up to the highest court at this point. I mean, it's, it's really great seeing, seeing the firm grow and seeing this department grow. And one of the things we, we talked about when um, we kicked off the Trial and Advocacy Academy this year was like the inaugural one of that here at Lois. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, what is an appellate court most reluctant to disturb at the trial level? Discretionary Correct. decisions and evidentiary determinations, anything of anything of that nature. So when you talk about working in months and quarters and years, uh, and we're talking about attorneys working more in minutes and hours and doing all the stuff on the ground level, uh, what's interesting is that you're operating in two different spheres, but they are, what they are doing is posturing us the best for success because determined questions of law, sure, you're going to get an appellate court to overturn. Questions of fact that were fully adjudicated at the trial level, if we're doing that right, we're standing on solid ground. Or am I off base on that? No, it's true. It's, it, you know, it even goes, when you consider the Supreme Court of the United States, very rarely do factual determinations of a, of a fact finder, of a judge who sees, hears, witness testimony evidence, uh, very rarely will that kind of fact-finding determination be overruled unless it's, it is an egregious abuse of discretion, which is arguably a legal means yeah. of reversal. So it's a, it's a very astute point, Chris. Yes. Cred credibility determinations are your best friend, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I uh, lead up the civil litigation, subrogation department here. That handles uh, basically everything that doesn't qualify as New York or New Jersey workers' comp. Uh, not just subrogation in Section 29 and Section 40, but also HIMP 1 and uh, Longshore and first-party civil defense. And, I, I mean, no-fault arbitration more recently and, you know, no-fault uh, cases in the New York County Civil Court. So a um, bit of a jack-of-all-trades. You know, we added uh, another member of our team, Ryan, who has had a tremendously uh, auspicious start to his legal career. You mean mock trial champion Ryan Wallace? That's exactly where I was going with that, and uh, going to be an attorney of himself uh, himself in short order. Um, but yeah, if you're wondering uh, sort of what our role has been in the firm this year, I think the the, the quickest answer is a 150 page risk transfer handbook or workbook that you know we rolled out in quarter three for the entire firm. That you know three hours, everybody sitting there and going through it. You know I'm, I'm, we're we're quite proud of it. It's proprietary. It's unique. And uh, it, I just trained the new uh, employees on it on Monday. And uh, I think it's relatively comprehensive. Yeah, certainly a delight, uh, you know, to, to imagine where, you know, where, where we were when we all started as attorneys uh, 
to have the experience of an attorney starting in Lowe's Law Firm today, uh, man, it just kind of makes you wish, like, I wish I had that, <laughs> right? But then we wouldn't be who we are, would we? <laughs> maybe, maybe, or maybe we'd be there faster. That's true. Right? It's very optimistic of you. <laughs> Mr. Positivity. Yeah. yeah. But let's get into it, right? When we talk about how this year has been, right, in your respective divisions, your your departments, uh, you know, why don't we start with you, Addison? You keep such a keen eye on not only our own landscape within this, uh, you know, appellate work or appellate uh, decisions that come from the board panel, the full board, or uh, the appellate division. What sticks out in your mind is something that, you know, our listeners can remember, uh, you know, from 2023. Well, in terms of Lois Law Firm, uh, we have received memoranda board panel decisions across all of our practices, across the self-insured, insured risk, um, complex claims that all regained some semblance and sense of control onto a file that was previously taken away. Um, no longer are the days where claimants come in and, uh, you know, when we started, right, they come in and just make the shots. Uh, the lowest way of coming in, speaking first, outlining what's going on at the hearing, outlining what the judge has to do, um, and developing a record based on control of the case is considered the new normal. And this concept is not just seen, you know, through a through our own memoranda of board panel decisions, but you know, I, <laughs> I ain't seeing it. I see competitors that are stealing our stealing our stuff, stealing our our methods of developing the record. And uh, you know, it's great being the first, but it also creates a very very um, hard uphill battle in terms of distinguishing our cases. But I have a couple of cases here in terms of substance, procedure, and a grab bag that no other competitor, no other law firm uh, could possibly achieve and only could be achieved through the litigation uh, of, a, of a lowest litigator at the trial level and then teamwork at the appellate level um, in terms of securing a favorable memorandum of board panel decision. Well, what is often imitated is rarely duplicated. That's so, true, right? That's true. <laughs> they, he, he gets to a, uh, a cliche saying, as I was just about to say, well, Addison, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. <laughs> is, is right? not? And that, <laughs> that cliche still works. Yeah. Right? And I, look at, I look at other memorandum of board panel decisions citing Lois's favorable memorandum of board panel decisions that other you know, competitors uh, use. And that, to me, is the most sincerest form of flattery. So success is the best revenge. Right. So you said procedural, substantive, and, and a grab bag. A grab bag. I want to. I want to wait until the until we get there, so that our okay. listeners will have some sense of suspense. A little, little bit of a tease, then, because I was about to jump in and just grab, take the grab bag. Don't but reveal. Okay. It. Okay. Uh, which one do we want to start out with first? Then, if we're saving the grab bag for uh, the end of the podcast. Which which one should we talk about first? I mean, let's talk about the substance because I think substance is the, you know, it's the uh, sexiest thing to talk about. You know, although Chris and I could talk about procedure until the cows come home. To be honest with you, we've with, done it before with, with smiles on your yes, faces. Yeah. We've there's, done the, it there's an entire pasture and herd out there at this point <laughs> talk, talking procedure until the cows come home. It's deadly that our offices are next door to each other. Yeah. It's kind of what you want in attorneys, though. You know, the the yeah. thing is uh, the 
the style or you know, the banging your fists on the table, that only goes so far if you don't have the backdrop or the foundation of knowledge of the law, right? And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's, that's really what we're supposed to do. Understanding the law and executing it for our clients, to me, is really the bedrock of really any service provider and, and obviously lawyers and paralegals as well. So yeah, let's, I think substance is a good one. Yeah, let's start with substance. Um, the case, it's, I will give the citation, employer Macy's Herald Square. Uh, it's a memorandum of board panel decision filed March 27th, 2023. Everybody knows the Macy's at Herald Square. I mean, it's Miracle on 34th Street. Especially for us, because I'm guessing that we won. <laughs> ah! <laughs> um, so it, it's actually, it has a very sordid and litigable history that I will sum up uh, as briefly as I can. Our litigator uh, partner, Tim Kane, uh, went in and had a great strategy for this COVID death claim. That's a great word. I want, don't mean to cut you off, but I kind of do because I was about to say, since I, I knew that we were going to, um, you know, uh, put a shine on Tim Kane here. Tim Kane is definitely one of the, the finest strategists <laughs> from a trial litigation perspective, uh, not only in our firm, but, you know, in our industry. I think that definitely goes to the fact that this result was borne by such an immaculate record at the trial level. I absolutely agree. I would hate to be an opponent to Tim Kane in workers' comp or monopoly. <laughs> I, I think he, he knows the rules really well. He knows, his, he knows the substance really well. And I think his style uh, can't, it's, you know, inimitable. It's, you can't really imitate what he's doing and how he does certain things. And you hate to have him as an opponent, but you love to have him there as a person, right? He's Absolutely. The, he's the consummate professional and you never want to go up against him in terms of litigation, but I mean, doing it with style and class and the way he does it, it's just, it's hard to imitate, right? I agree. I agree. And I think he lulls the claimant. He lulls the witness into a sense of, false sense of security uh, claimants you know feel like they're having a conversation with with um, Tim and this conversation is actually dictated it's stenographed right um, it's on the record and then Tim immediately breaks this trance of uh, quasi casualness and says judge look what the claimant just said right and it's it's pretty remarkable um, I'd love for him to defend me if I ever got arrested. Uh, but that's a that's a joke. Yeah, knock here, knock on knock door. A bunch of wood being knocked here because that's never going to happen. No, no, no. So, in terms of uh, this case, Macy's Herald Square, it it was extremely, uh, extremely harsh. Right, the decedent's counsel uh, made serious accusations that you know Macy's Herald Square at the um, turn of the COVID pandemic in. Uh, March of 2020 was the epicenter of uh, of you know COVID-19. It's Herald Square. It's in the heart of New York City. In fact, the notice of decision that the judge wrote indicated you know, as part of his rationale that Herald Square is in the heart of New York City, which is the most populated city in the United States of America. Therefore, there was prevalence. And quite honestly, the deceased surviving spouse testified that she heard a rumor that a few people contracted COVID-19. The decedent worked on floors where there were no other people. Um, the decedent had no, uh, 
interplay with any other person, anybody. Um, it had a separate locker room. There were, I mean, the facts could not uh, show that there was no overlap between the decedent and any other worker in Macy's Herald Square. Not saying the fact that it was limited staff at that time. And, of course, we got on the record that, you know, the decedent drove to work, the decedent took the train to work, the decedent took a cab to work, the decedent was outside, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it all boiled down to this one assertion um, that was made that the only point of evidence that was submitted to the court, that was submitted to the workers' comp judge, that the decedent contracted COVID at work was utters uh, and assertions from the claimant's counsel, right? So, and of course, uh, words that attorneys say are not evidence, right? But the judge bought it. And, you know, uh, that's when I rolled up my sleeves. And Tim and I worked tirelessly on this. You know, at the time, the law of the case was that it's a compensable death claim. And we're dealing with this prevalence standard. We're dealing with this... um, this pandemic, we're dealing with all of these factors. We're, we're dealing with someone who submitted a New York Daily News article saying that the Macy's Herald Square shut down uh, very close to the date of death. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And you got to, to mention it, you got to do it in eight pages, right? You got to do it in eight pages. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, the the underlying uh, issue that you know maybe isn't relevant, but still. Important is that you, your your opposition is someone that lost someone that they care about, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not you know your run of the mill like this. It's not like we were saying this person didn't die, right? So you're also trying to navigate that you know type of public policy as well. So yeah, there is a respect that needs to be afforded to the uh, opposition, right? Um, but ultimately, the board panel uh, upon appeal. Uh, essentially adopted our argument nearly in full um, that the lay witness that was submitted uh, on the part of the claimant was uh, essentially provided far too general uh, testimony to be assessed with any weight whatsoever. And the claimant's general allegation, right, the surviving spouse's general allegation that the decedent contracted uh, COVID-19 at work was so speculative and ultimately, given the facts that were uh, that were established, right, the board concluded that it was inadequate to establish prevalence and to establish the case, and it warranted a reversal, complete reversal, a disallowance. The matter was closed in its entirety, uh, and this high exposure claim essentially disappeared overnight. Um, but it wasn't without sweat and. You know, it wasn't without hard work. And so I think this case shows something that Lois does really well and that other other uh, firms can't even <laughs> hold a match to, right? We're able to develop the record. We're able to pour over the law. We're able to get it in, in eight pages. And uh, we're able to secure these kinds of decisions that, you know, make sense at the end of the day. It's a great substantive win, you know, where you think that, you know, erring on the side of like truth and justice with these things that you normally correlate with the, the legal field are mostly just common sense. Like if that claim becomes compensable, then every single person who had 
uh, a relative, a spouse that passed away due to COVID-19 in New York City, right? Or even the state of New York is now going to just follow a playbook yeah. to say, this is this is why I should now be paid by my employer. Yeah, like there's a threshold of population density that equates to compensability. You know, right. it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's nonsensical. Or you know? like when you yeah. explain COVID-19 claims to people who are outside of the industry, right? You know, like there's going to be some people who listen to this podcast that aren't in our field. And every time that I explain it to them, it's always this incredulous response like, so what? They, they're saying that they definitely know that they got COVID from this particular location. Like, yeah, that's that's exactly what they're saying. Yeah, It's a, it's a wild ride. But uh, I'm glad that, you know, uh, the truth prevails. Right, right. So in terms of uh, the procedural win, you know, this one is employer rolling free-to-lay sales. It's a memorandum of board panel decision from September 13th. And, you know... This case has been, uh, it, I mean, it's it's been a migraine for me, <laughs> and it's a pleasure for me to work on this case with Christian Cison. Uh, another, to be fair, uh, to all the listeners, I told Addison we didn't have to do this one. <laughs> no, I I think you know, and and I tried to describe, um, you know, I tried to describe uh, people's litigation styles as art styles, right? And uh, Christian is definitely a Monet of the of the um, workers' compensation litigation world, right? Whereas Tim Kaine might be a uh, Andy Warhol, right? I think I think Christian is more of an impressionist, right? He he paints a picture. He's able to discern certain facts. He's able to pull out certain um, certain legal principles and apply them in in situations that you know warrant great results. So uh, in terms of the procedure here, and, you know, I know Chris, Chris and I are going to go back and forth on this. I know Chris is going to get excited. So whenever we as a carrier submit uh, for an IME, right, an independent medical examiner, that's a doctor who does not provide treatment to the claimant, but provides an independent assessment as to uh, where the claimant is on the scale of uh, eventually achieving maximum medical improvement, there are very strict standards, which I call strictures, right? There are these structures and these rules that we need to comply with in order to submit properly our IME report as part of evidence. And there are great public policy uh, reasons as to why that is, uh, both you know, for stability and predictability in the court so that the IME report is not um, tampered with you know, uh, whether it's with a vendor or with an adversary or with a treating physician. And so these kinds of, uh, sir, you know, service needs to be in the same time, uh, same uh, manner and the same day. And so these kinds of, uh, you know, strictures, these kinds of rules are very, very tough, but it's par for the course for us on this side. We know these kinds of rules like the back of our hand, but not on the other side, there are other uh, claims, you know, death claims, of course, but there are some cases where claimants want to obtain IMEs in order to assess, you know, uh, where he or she is on the scale of maximum medical improvement. And that's a good like identifier here, right? Because our case that you're, or the case that you're about to talk, uh, you know, very freely on here is where the claimant 
didn't have a treating physician as it is a death claim and needed an independent review of the record by a doctor who didn't have a doctor-patient relationship, right? Which then is governed by a different set of regulations and rules, which uh, becomes really the the theory of this, this case here. Absolutely. So, you know, Christian goes into court and pounds the table and says, Section 137 applies to IMEs and, of course, the attendant regulations there, too, which is 300.2D of the 12th chapter of the regulations. And, you know, Christian's going in and and quite succinctly explains, you know, we understand that this is a death claim. We understand that there are tons of medical reports. However, the rules are the rules of the rules. And so um, in this case, uh, there were... Multiple IME reports that were obtained on behalf of the claimant that were <laughs> tampered with. <laughs> I could, I, mean, I could say that. I mean, it's it's so factually egregious where you know uh, the claimant's counsel might have suggested something to the IME where the IME didn't fill out the the cover sheet correctly, where the IME didn't serve every party correctly, and the idea was that one thirty seven and of course three hundred point two requires that an IME include service, that an IME includes correspondences that are submitted to it, including cover letters, so that all the parties understand the uh, sufficiency of the written reports. And of course, the board, uh, I have to say this, you know, while while the Macy's Herald Square claim lost at the trial level and got it reversed, this, and it's Christian Seesaw, so he, he got it in the win column first, and I kept it in the win column for him, but it was... It was a very easy task, right? You go in, you listen to the to the record, you find the applicable law, which they cited, right, in this decision, um, the very law that you know, Christian cited, and ultimately struck all of the IME reports that um, the claimant's counsel relied upon in order to uh, submit for causal relationship. Well, while we're high-fiving each other, right, I think also <laughs> the, the important thing to point out, you didn't just keep it in the win column. They pointed out arguments in their appellate brief that were not raised on the record at trial. So to keep it in the win column, it's not just saying, hey, our trial position was correct, right? To actually defend this particular case required you to actually go back as if you were the trial attorney and defend them as if they had been placed on the record. Now, that didn't do the claimant any favors by raising different types of arguments on appeal, but still, I, I wanted to make sure that you, you know you get uh, your, your flowers as well on that. Well, thank you. It's a good point. De novo review is the standard of review for the board panel. And so de novo essentially means of new, right? With fresh eyes, you're going in, and you're relitigating pretty much everything. The standard is as if you had an entirely new judge, uh, insofar as the credibility of the judge determining uh, of the witness when that judge hears the witness, sees the witness's demeanor and countenance. Right? I believe that's the legal standard. Uh, but I appreciate that. I absolutely appreciate it. You know, too often, or at least I can think, I think we all have a horror story where. You know, there's a vendor that maybe got a little sloppy when it came to the service rules on the IME. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was the world's greatest IME with a 0% permanency opinion. And they just didn't serve that one treating doctor that filed a C4.0 five years ago or whenever it was. And I'm sorry, the whole thing's precluded. And you're sitting there pounding your fist and 
getting angrier and angrier and saying, I want to tell this client never to use this vendor again. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's, it's nice to prevail on procedure, but on the other hand, it's almost encouraging that, you know, the standard is upheld as to everybody, right? It's, it's fundamentally fair that if you're going to preclude IMEs, preclude IMEs, right? So I, I, I support also uh, making the arguments on appeal to shoot down this novel effort to overturn the trial result. But again, those credibility determinations at the trial level, they're your best friend. I know. Well, so the, I mean, it's a real thing that some judges at the trial level do not want to be reversed on appeal, right? They, they don't want to. And so even in a very employee-friendly industry that we live and work in, there are judges that say, well, no, I think Lois is going to appeal this. And that's what goes to what you were saying before, Addison, is that, you know, the mindset that we have for some of these cases is to not let our clients be, you know, just walked all over on just because that's the way it's been done. Right. Yeah. Like we hear that a lot. And when we take that very like adversarial stand because we're upholding really what the law says we're entitled to do, it's a little bit different just because, you know, you're, oh, you're the big, bad Macy's Herald Square or your big, bad Frito-Lay. It's a lot, lot more nuanced than that. And to have a trial judge that was sitting on the bench and could actually hear arguments properly and say, you know what, this is what the law requires that's going to lead to more favorable results. Yeah, there's no such thing as, you know, legal Robin Hood standard entitlement. You know, haves and haves nots does not enter into a fairness determination. And you know, there's never, I mean, you get it right. You're entitled to statutorily, you know, guaranteed benefits, right? It's, it's only fair if you satisfy the requisite proofs under the law. If you don't, there is no entitlement to pick another man's pocket. I think a lot of judges specifically like to split the baby, right? A very Solomon-oriented determination, and that judgment is what's in the middle between the two adversaries' positions, when, while romantic, is completely misplaced, right? A judge needs to apply the facts to the law, determine what the facts are in order to apply the law properly. It is not um, meeting in the middle between the parties. A judge is not a mediator. A judge is more of an arbiter. A judge is a A trier of fact. A trier of fact. And so, you know, when we go in, sometimes judges uh, always, you know, side for one side or, you know, demur, try to continue the case, adjourn the case, move it along, and not listen to what the facts actually are. and so, you know, that's, that's our hallmark. And I think this year, when, when it comes to substance and when it comes to procedure, uh, we stood out in the you know, milieu of memoranda board panel decisions. And I'm starting to see other memoranda cite these two specifically. But what about when it comes to grab bag? Oh, I was, I was glad you brought that up because I can't wait. <laughs> well, we need like a laugh track or we need, we need some sort of tracking behind this. Dun, 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 dun. John, that's your cue. We're going to we're going to talk about employer Reef Global Inc. And you know the particulars of this case. I want to I want to actually reverse. I want to keep the particulars at the back end of the of uh, our discussion here because we're here with the one and only Mister Section Twenty Nine himself, Chris Major. 
I believe the nickname I gave him was the Section 29 Superhero. Ooh. <laughs> Unless we're talking about a New Jersey case, in which case it becomes the Section 40 Superhero. <laughs> yes, that's right. They're different capes. Different yeah, right, capes. Right, right, right. Now, is it, is it the Marvel Universe or is it DC? Uh, it's, it's got to be Marvel. Uh, <laughs> it's always, it's always where Marvel. your allegiances lie. Yeah. Very good, very good. Well, in this case, essentially, we had a decision in which the judge found that the claimant um, had a 10% schedule loss of use to the right knee. And the claimant appealed and said, well, actually, my um, my other doctor, or, or I'm sorry, my treating doctor said that I had a 20% and a 15% uh, to another site and stacked it together. And of course, we, uh, we filed a rebuttal and we noted uh, that that's totally incorrect, that our uh, schedule opinion of 10% is proper. But we also appealed. We, we were a cross-appellant, which, um, you know, once again, we're going back into procedure, right? We have the claimant who appealed, and then we have the carrier who appealed. And so the claimant, of course, rebutted our appeal. I want to focus on the second appeal that I mentioned, that we appealed because there was a third-party consideration that the judge completely uh, missed, that the judge completely ignored. Uh, we argued essentially that no money should be moving to the claimant because there was an overpayment um, should the awards even be implemented in the reserve decision because of a third-party settlement and because uh, there essentially there were issues with Section 29 that pertained to the calculus. Right, and the claimant says, no, I, I, I disagree. Um, the indemnity benefits paid uh, exceed the gross award of the SLU, which it, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really hold water, that kind of argument. And essentially the board panel agreed with our uh, argument in terms of uh, both the SLU, of course, uh, determination, and in terms of the third party settlement, that the awards should be uh, held in abeyance, the matter gets re returned and rescinded to the hearing calendar to discuss the issue of the alleged overpayment pursuant to, of course, sections 29.1 and section 29.4. And I wanted to I wanted to pass the baton to Mr. Major as to the implications of this kind of logic and decision. Well, it's actually kind of a nice parallel to what we were just talking about with, you know, section 137, right? Fair, fairest to one, mm -hmm. fairest to all. Because you know, it, many times we have bemoaned the existence of uh, Terra Nova versus Lair Construction Co., which, you know, in the case of the schedule loss of use, requires that the carrier pay its equitable share of litigation expenses as they become, to yada, yada, yada. And it was knocking down our third-party settlement credit by the cost of litigation percentage or the schedule loss of use was still payable at the cost of litigation. The board panel's going two different ways on it. Both ways, of course, inevitably are unfavorable to the carrier. But now, here's the fairness of it, right? We have an overpayment. We have a third-party settlement credit that wasn't considered. And now, suddenly, it's in our favor. And, um, you know, I, I do think uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice springboard into um, my segment here on this uh, end-of-year podcast, year-in-review podcast. Before we get there, though, Chris, right? Like, I mean, just that issue itself, right? Do you find that maybe, and maybe this was what you were going to say, do you find that we are appealing more Section 29 related issues than in years past? 
Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and part of it comes with awareness, right? I, I think anyone who has, has dabbled in the third party and subrogation section 29 aspects of uh, cases in New York, you know, there's an astonishing dearth of knowledge about this, right? You have adversaries just make, making stuff up that just flat out doesn't exist. Judges getting the law wrong entirely. ATF deposits being directed when they shouldn't be. It's it's chaos, right? More so than any other area of workers' comp. It's this, like, you know, dirty little secret that nobody wants to look at, right? Um, so you know, we have made an effort to turn the spotlight on it and, you know, demystify the boogeyman, as I like to say, and uh, turn it into, you know, yet another tool in the arsenal. So, Okay. How does that then segue into what you were going to say? So, Because I, I did cut you off, right? So sorry for, for doing that. Addison's case, you know, with the employer Reef Global and that Section 29 issue, what, what I guess, segue or what, what does that mean for your year in review and what you handle? So one of the things that we focus on, and, and if you, you know, poke around on uh, the newsletter on the website, you know, you'll, you'll see the winds starting to trickle in from it. But, you know, one of the things we really focused on this year was you know, 29.5 compliance. And we, we did a whole uh, we did a whole podcast on it. And, you know, uh, let, let's not retread familiar ground. Right. That Other than to say this, though, because it was very funny when we recorded a podcast with cases that were successful on Section 29.5. And almost that afternoon, I believe it was, after the recording was over. It was that exact afternoon. Chris came to me and said, wait, wait, wait. No, we have an even bigger Section 29.5 win. We need to record another segment. Yeah, that was that was Hannah Bacon's case. Uh, credit to the trial attorney where, where it's due. Um, but that that was because, uh, I mean, here's here's the, you know, the punchline, the, 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 the tagline, the teaser for that one. You know, almost half a million dollars in exposure disallowed over not a failure to reimburse $16,000, but late payment of $16,000. So, I mean, that's the consequences here, right? And and the specter of Section 29.5 is such that you can posture your nightmare cases for settlement just by making a rules-based argument. Like, we have another one that, you know, settlement negotiations are ongoing, but, you know, uh, we, we have a problematic claimant. You know, maybe she has concurrent employment. Maybe she has reduced earnings. She's beefing up the treatment records. This thing's like two or three years away from permanency despite her best efforts. But two weeks before the statute of limitations, you know, she files her own pro se complaint. And then she gets bullied by the adverse carrier who has an attorney into stipulating to discontinue it with prejudice that same month. <laughs> and Meaning in the civil claim. Right. right. She, Not she, our client is doing the Right, claim. right, right. So she, she fought, yeah, I, I, the, the carrier for the putative third-party defendant, I should put it, and they shall not be named. But, you know, we have a pro se claimant who files a complaint, um, and then two weeks later goes, meh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't really have a uh, viable case here. I'm just going to discontinue it with prejudice. And what's problematic is, you know, you have so-and-so Esquire on behalf of blank, you know, company uh, signing the stip and then, you know, Ms. Claimant <laughs> signing the stip, right? There, there's sort of disparate bargaining power here. So, um, but what was interesting was, you know, well, yeah, if you commence a third-party action, technically you're supposed to file the Form C-121 and had you done that, it would have warned you up and down. It's on there. It's bold. It's italicized. It's underlined. 
you must get your carrier's consent before you settle or discontinue your case. The law is very clear. Discontinuance is a compromise that requires consent, just like our consent to settle is required under 29.5. Now, that issue remains still open, right? It was raised in front of the board. The judge was, you know, claimant's counsel's going for a non-proton approval of it. We won't go into the specifics of what that is. But basically, you know, if the civil court approves the settlement retroactively, there is no 29.5 violation, even though they didn't get our consent. But again, it's the specter of it. Right. There's a chance that this is basically, you know, a posthumous disallowance, a waiver of the right to future indemnity and medical better than a 114A. Right. Waiver of the right to indemnity and medical over failure to get our consent to discontinue a case. So it puts you in this position, even if it's ultimately unsuccessful. Now there's a settlement demand. There's a full and final Section 32 settlement demand where you're staring down the barrel of another two years of litigation otherwise. So it's it's quite powerful. Fairly, fa- fairly creative, right? Um, the uh, the idea is that, hey, like we're, we've, we've kind of turned over every stone, but then the mantra of, wait, 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 no, there's always another stone to turn over, right? So, and I don't know too much detail about that case, but I, I did... Listen to what you're saying about, you know, this this disparate bargaining power. But what I can say is very clear is, one, ignorance of the law is not an excuse in any type of area, right? And I, I know that, you know, in some of the cases that we deal with, there hasn't been a proceeding in my lifetime as a lawyer where I have dealt with an opposition who wasn't represented by counsel. And that arbiter, that judge, that mediator, that whoever isn't going to say, are you represented by counsel? Do you want counsel for this, right? So just before everybody takes out the the tissues for this, let's just keep it, you know, fair here, right? Ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And when you choose not to retain counsel, you can't be treated as if you didn't. Right. And, uh, you know, you want to talk about the tearjerker aspect of it. I I mean, I think almost verbatim in the affidavit from the claimant in support of the 29.5 NPT motion is a statement that I feel I am being punished for trying to do the right thing. So, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I feel like that that, like emotional plea. right? Right. But but bear in mind that this, you know, disparate power position is a consideration for the court. You know, the clerk of the court reached out and, was, and, and said, like, emailed all the parties and was like, you know, it's a little problematic that this was discontinued with the carrier's attorney signing off on it with prejudice and this lady didn't have counsel. Like, what's going on here? So Now, I do have a question. With stipulated discontinuances with prejudice, it is my, uh, it is my experience that that can also... Uh, imply that the parties engaged in a settlement outside of court. Uh, is, do you think that's why uh, uh, carrier's consent is so, you know, uh, it, there's some sort of disparateness there between getting consent for a settlement versus discontinuing it? Well, that's that's certainly why it's required, right? We, right. Need, we need the opportunity to avail ourselves of the rights. And yeah, sometimes there, there are shenanigans afoot, <laughs> right? If you see that a complaint was filed and then there's six months of litigation and then all of a sudden, you know, this matter has been amicably adjusted between the parties and we hereby consent. Okay, somebody got money, right? But in this case, there were exactly two filings in the docket. 
a complaint of stiff and discontinuance two weeks later. <laughs> so there's functionally no chance there was money moving, I and, and, I, and the facts bore it out. But. And the opportunity cost, right? So it, the, the, like, let's say it's a legitimate stipula- stipulation of discontinuance where the claimant receives nothing from the third-party defendant, right? Well, if the carrier from the workers' compensation claim had been made aware, then they also can say, wait, wait, you, you don't get anything from them? Mm-hmm. Right. This third party defendant was sued by you for a reason. Right. They can't give you a couple of bucks. Right. That we would have a lien on. Or sort of our point in opposing the NPT motion. Had we known this was a thing, Section 29.2 would have given us the opportunity to prosecute it if you didn't want to. Subrogatively, you're right. But, 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 you, but you just... Discontinued, discontinued it with prejudice, it. and now I have nothing. Yeah, I don't so think I've ever actually heard that pronounced that way. And, <laughs> no, but it's but true. It's right. No, it's, it's twenty nine two. The idea is that we have rights in this in yeah. this statute that the claimant had just forewent, and that that is, I think, that's the the Achilles heel there. I think that's. And linchpin. And and again, you know, the the, the the book is still open, right? They're they're holding a, they're holding off on a decision until you know the parties reach some sort. Of, while we're discussing the section thirty two, and the win here is that a section thirty two is being discussed. It's almost I don't want to say it's immaterial, but you know, the creativity of raising the argument is what matters. And you know, speaking of the the creativity aspect here, you know that that um, trial attorney Hannah Bacon, when we talked about earlier, you know. We're a values-based law firm, right? You know, creativity, creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service, right? Those are, those are our values. And creativity, you know, try stuff, find out, see what happens. If it's not unethical and it's not illegal, there's nothing that says you can't do it, right? If it's not frivolous, why not? Take the shot. Maybe you're the one that makes the law on it. And that's one of the things we like doing here. And, you know, so that that case that Hannah handled where, you know, this third-party attorney sent a check six months late. What actually happened, if you get into it a little bit, is there wasn't a lot of money moving around. It was a very, very small third-party policy. It was only 25000 Now, in motor vehicle accident cases, there's a nice little thing called underinsured motorist benefits, which, you know, if there is a viable claim, right, if, if the adverse party is at fault, there has to be liability, Right. If there is somebody at fault and the automobile policy has UIM coverage on it, the claimant's own or the employer's own or whoever's, uh, they can recover beyond the $25,000, you know, third party policy. So there was only, you know, you take out the litigation costs, you're you're looking at 16 grand on 25,000 from this third party settlement. What happened here is the attorney misunderstood the consent that he had signed and dispersed the funds to his client. And our argument was... That whole time, we could have been, even if your understanding was that we were taking a credit and we weren't getting reimbursed, which is not what the express terms of the consent say, by the way, even if that is what was agreed to, we could have been taking our credit for the past six months. This lady could die tomorrow, and I might never see this $16,000 credit. Now, what actually happened, you know, the money was dispersed, right? So this $16,000 check that shows up six, six months later, where's this coming from? Yeah, if he's if he's cutting it from his trust account, that's a huge ethical violation, right? Because he's commingling client assets. There's no attorney on earth that would do that, right? Well, so so you know we do so. Not implying that it would be us, but I'm right, saying, right. No, I'm but saying in an absolute. Somebody you know, did. 
if you believe the best in the law, there is no attorney on earth that would do it. Let's put it that way, right? Good cops and bad cops. Tis the season. So, um, (laughs) humbug. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, we we did some poking around. $25,000 policy. You better believe there's a UIM, underinsured motorist claim, and that policy limits a million. That's where the money's coming from, right? Settlement advances are a thing. Everyone's seen the commercials, you know, JG Wentworth, 877 cash now, right? You know, well, if they're not thinking of it now that I am. Right. Yeah. Structured settlements or cash advances or liquidation, litigation funding loans, whatever you want to call them. Those are a thing. And that's where the money was coming from. Right. He has, they had a perspective. The claimant had a perspective UIM recovery. And they tried to cut us a check from that. Now, here's where the creativity aspect comes into play. We argued partially on the appeal what, you know. Addison referenced, you know, which is that, you know, we, we've been prejudiced here and, you know, we didn't have the opportunity to avail ourselves of the rights and all that other stuff, right? The pure 29.5 argument. We also argued that uh, Section 29, by the law, doesn't apply to UIM. So if you allow the claimant to send us a $16,000 check from a UIM policy, what are you doing here? You've just said Section 29 applies to UIM. If you allow this, claimants can just pay back the lien from any source they want, whenever the heck they want, as long as it's convenient to them, as long as the numbers eventually add up. That's insanity, right? So so it was a similar argument to what Addison was saying, which is, you know, the open the door argument, right? With the COVID case. Think about what you're doing here. You're going to overturn the third department saying no Section 29 on UIM. And you're going to open the door for claimants that yeah, maybe I sell my house and pay back the Section 29 lien then. None of it matters, right? It's the carrier. They'll be fine. So here's what's crazy about this. In the in a UIM case, the UIM carrier is not going to pay unless there's actual liability. They basically stand in the shoes of the carrier for the at-fault party. Well, plaintiff's counsel, the same guy that tried to send us a $16,000 check from the UIM, uh, prospective UIM recovery, files a motion for summary judgment in this case. And he attaches an affidavit from the claimant and, you know, goes up and down about the liability and why he wasn't at fault. And long story short, the defendants failed to meaningfully oppose it. So the court awards summary judgment on the issue of liability in favor of the claimant. Now, this was a case that qualified for intercompany loss transfer. We won't go into the specifics, but basically we can get up to $50,000 back via arbitration, right? When loss transfer applies. But... The automobile insurance carrier for the claimant's vehicle had previously tried loss transfer and arbitration form said, no liability, it's he said, said, she said. Well, Jen Andrews, uh, senior paralegal, she works on the civil litigation and subrogation department with me. She attaches the UIM summary judgment uh, order to the the arbitration petition and goes, well, UIM carrier stands in the shoes of the third-party liability or third-party automobile carrier. So, you know, notwithstanding that arbitration forms has already said no loss transfer on this case, they're 100% liable because the court has adjudicated that the defendant was liable and therefore the UIM carrier is liable and therefore the you know automobile liability insurance carrier is liable. And what was crazy about this is on one end, we're saying on appeal... Section 29 does not apply to UIM, and therefore, you know, there's a Section 29.5 violation. And then on the other end, we're taking that same UIM case and saying, by the way, this is why we should get $50,000 back via intercompany loss transfer. And it worked. And, and there was a coworker who was injured in the same accident. So this UIM summary judgment order 
results in full 100% liability against the adverse carrier on two different claims. You know, the maximum amount recoverable via loss transfer on the very same case where we had just prevailed on a 29.5 violation. And it was just one of those things where you, where you look at it and, and you see two different sides of the case and it all comes together in this beautiful, you know, chaotic symphony of, of litigation, right? And uh, I, don't, I don't know, just focusing on the theme of creativity at the end of the year, it was just one of those ones that stood out to me. It's just a really neat and nuanced win. Yeah, Employer Blue Bucket Group is the name of the caption. I don't have the date, but it's it's a handy case that I'd like to refer to in, in the Appeals Bureau here at Long's Law Firm. It's a good one. It's a good one. Well, you know, you have a situation here, Chris, where you have, you're talking about two literal results, right? Uh, I know you're, you're very humble, but, you know, we should give you some shine for that as well. Not just you and, and, and Jen, but, you know, you're... Uh, attack mode for this type of case really should be honored. And, you know, we, we have that other actual result from Hannah Bacon and what she did to get uh, essentially um, a different kind of free $0 Section 32 where we're not liable for future indemnity or medical in her case. But, you know, the one thing that does stick out in me with the stipulation of discontinuance where we don't even have that result yet, right? But it's the investment in that result. That right. matters more to us, right? It's, because when you invest in the result and the work and the the you know just the the team aspect of getting it, they will come. Right. You know, not every day, but if you reinforce exactly what you're supposed to do every single time to its fullest, the results will come. And uh, for anybody that really follows follows us on social or really takes looks at our website, they've been coming up a lot this year. Right. So who are we giving our flowers to to that stipulation of discontinuance case? Oh, you mean who is who is our handling attorney yeah. on that one? That, yeah. that would be Ali Yaction. So definitely have to take a look at that one. And I'm going to be kind of monitoring to just to see how she does, because, you know, she's also an excellent advocate in, in our group as well. Um, but the but, creativity is the win here. Right. Whether or not exactly. whether, or not we, whether or not we ultimately prevail on the NPT motion again, I don't want to say it's it's immaterial, but a Section 32 demand showed up on a case that had no end in sight. Right. You know, that's right. the that's the win here. Right. If, if you are a risk professional listening to this right now, you know, that's a huge win. Right. Where you just want to settle it so bad. You want to pay someone to have this go away. And they won't do it. They just want to nickel and dime you for every little thing that happens along the way. And we can actually procure demand due to the leverage of litigation. I mean, that's that's a storybook. Reconceptualize the win. That's what that's what we tell the uh, the new attorneys. You know, the incoming classes here. Reconceptualize the win. It's always great to get it right. It's always great to have an adversary that you can say you were wrong. It's always great to get the win. You love that surety. You love that sense of victory, but make no mistake, our job is to mitigate exposure. We like setting law. We like being right. But at, at the end of the day, if we've saved the carrier a few bucks, we have done a good job on the case, I'm, right? I want to second that. I think the best win is not a grand slam per se. Even though they're really cool, I think Jeopardy is the best outcome the jeopardy on the adversary's case. The adversary is the plaintiff, the claimant, the petitioner is prosecuting and taking this case on, uh, you know, on a journey. And we are controlling the case. When we create some jeopardy, 
we are taking the reins away from the plaintiff and saying, no, we are getting you to the finish line by our terms. And uh, every appellate attorney, I just want to make a note, NPT is no pro-tunk motion. Chris kept saying NPT motion, NPT yeah. motion, motion. I just want to uh, define the, the terms. Yeah, now, now, as long as we're defining de novo for people, non pro tunk is now for then quite literally in Latin. But, uh, you know, the sad thing about this is Christian warned me about like 10 minutes before we got on this podcast. Hey, don't get too much into the legalese. <laughs> well, you know, and here I'm Chris, casually dropping NPT. Well, on. <laughs> Chris is so passionate about... What he does, right? And we're talking about some of these cases that he's going forward, like, you know, in terms of like an introduction into how the year has been for his department. And I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, I'm with you every single step of the way. But, you know, this is like that now we're into not just 201 level, because, right? This podcast was 201 level for experienced risk professionals and, you know, my mom. Of course. But other than that, right, sometimes we need to actually explain so much value that, like, might not be ascertained from hearing the words NPT. Like, people should actually know, for instance, that NPT is almost this excuse valve. Right. Right. For, for getting away from the law. Right. And, and I think to myself, when we see those motions from plaintiff's attorneys in civil court, it's saying, hey, civil court judge. Please forgive me for not following the law, right? So that's, I think that's really what it comes down to there, that our defenses have been applied and just somehow there's still an option for the claimant or petitioner or, or not really petitioner, but claimant or plaintiff to really get out of that whole mess. And that's where the concept of fairness comes in. You know, an, an NPT motion for a compromise order still needs everything Section 29.5 has, but there's a heightened showing on top of it. They have to show the discontinuance was reasonable or the settlement settlement was reasonable. You know, the delay wasn't due to their neglect or fault. And, and the big one, the biggest caveat here, that the carrier was not prejudiced. And that's where the, that's, there's an additional three little showings on top of a 29-5 compromise order. When you're seeking it late, you got to show that we were not prejudiced. And that's our argument in this case, right? With, with, uh, in, in Ali's case, that, you discontinued this without even telling us you ever filed it. If I had a chance to subrogate, that's gone now. That's the definition of prejudice, right? So it all comes back to that concept of, uh, of fairness that we talked about when Addison was walking us through his substantive, procedural, and grab bag appeals. Yeah, you know, now, now for then is, by another phrase, uh, ask for forgiveness later. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it literally right. is now right. for them. To well, it's like that. like people say, right? Ask for forgiveness instead of permission, it's right? Like, yes. Some type of like you know way to go about doing things, and that's what they're really doing, right? Like instead of asking for permission, which is what they should have done, they're gonna ask for forgiveness for not getting permission. Right, you consent. Um, <laughs> right, it's, it's really great. Yeah. yeah, what a nice way of circling back. Uh, so, guys, I think that's a great way to end it. You know, uh, I can give. Thanks to you guys, Addison and Chris, for your tireless work this year. You know, Addison, I'll probably just invite you to more podcasts if you're going to bring up my own cases to give me some shine. Sounds good to me. He, do, he knows whose office the mic is in. <laughs> I, I do appreciate it. I also want to give uh, one shout out to, you know, the man behind the mic. That's uh, John Grayson. I think that, uh, you know, the work that he's been doing behind the scenes just to keep this podcast uh, sounding the way it sounds, reaching so many different listeners. 
Uh, my big thanks to you, my man. Uh, I'm going to keep this it. under one hour. It's actually still under one hour. So we, we, we're not going to give you too much work during, uh, you know, holiday month. Uh, but thank you, John, for all the work that you're doing. And of course, all the work that you do as in our marketing of our firm as well. So for Addison O'Donnell and Christopher Major, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.